The InvinoFab podcast brings meaningful conversations to our community of listeners. Part of this is sharing stories with and by our friends like Telesom, who want to bring meaningful experiences to you. At Telesom, we're on a mission to create meaningful work for sommeliers, meaningful connections for wine lovers, and to change the face of wine. For this season of InvinoFab, we're honored to raise a glass with sommeliers who want to share their wine secrets and knowledge with you. For this season of InvinoFab, we're collaborating with Telesom to fill your cup and your ear with sommelier stories uncorking the wine tales. On this episode of Telesom Somp Story, we're joined by wine pro Christopher Sachs. Christopher Sachs is a wine and spirits professional based in central New Jersey. He was classically trained in culinary arts at the Culinary Institute of America, where he took a short course in the study of wine. That's where his love of food and wine really blossomed. Shortly after graduation, he worked in the restaurant industry at 90 Acres in Peapack, Gladstone, New Jersey, and End of Elm in Morristown, New Jersey. After his last stint in restaurants, Christopher began studying with Wine and Spirits Education Trust at the International Wine Center in New York City and has since completed the advanced course in Wines and Spirits, as well as a coveted Diploma of Wines and Spirits. He currently works as a sales representative with Skernick Wines and Spirits in the New Jersey, New York area, and consults with various retail and restaurant partners on a daily basis. Christopher finds joy in exploring the world by way of wine, spirits, sake, and cider. Welcome to the pod, Chris. Well, tell us a little bit about your Somalia story. How'd you get into this wine work of yours? So my Somalia story started uh, when I was fresh out of high school. I went to culinary school. I went to the, the CIA, the kind of Disney world of, of culinary, the pinnacle of culinary arts, if you will. In the Can United you tell States. them what a CIA is? It's not the FBI, CIA. No, it's a different it's one. It's not the FBI. No, I, I, my Instagram <laughs> handle is Asian alcohol, but I'm not that kind of secret agent. It is the Culinary Institute of America. The, like I said, the pinnacle, the top of, uh, of the charts uh, for culinary education in the United States. And I went through a, a very quick two-year uh, associate's degree there, which took me into kitchens. It took me into butchery. And at the very end, uh, we worked in the four restaurants that the campus had. And three weeks, three weeks, just, that's it, was focused on wine education. And I kind of got a little bit of a taste there while I was in school, left the culinary after I graduated, worked in restaurants, and found that love all over again. Uh, for wanting to know where beverages are, where they come from, how they're made, why there's somebody employed in the restaurant to do nothing but wine. Um, so I, I pretty much dove down that, that, that rabbit hole and started learning on my own. What interested you about wine? Because I know that you left the kitchen and then you pursued wine more actively as your day job. So what really drove that interest in wine? It really started with the fact that I was a broke college kid paying back debt. Um, all of my friends and family were traveling around the world and I wanted that experience as well. And I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't just spur the moment, hop on a plane on a weekend. So instead I would pop a bottle instead. I would, uh, and it's kind of become my philosophy nowadays of, of traveling by wine is a bottle can take you anywhere. I pop the cork to some, to a Chilean Carmenere and feel the culture, feel the history, feel the land, uh, or a Bordeaux, feel like you're in France right by the rivers. It's a totally different style, and I still do that every day. When I'm sitting at home, bored on the weekends, I'll pop a German Riesling and feel like I'm climbing the steep slopes of the falls. So it's a, it's a really fun way of, of breaking out. I like that idea of travel and wine. Um, so dare I ask, since you are travel by wine, 
if you had to pick one geographic wine region, what would you choose to go to? That's a really, really difficult question. It's kind of like asking, uh, what's your favorite wine? And I don't have an answer, unfortunately. Uh, but if I had to pick one region to visit, to go to, I would probably say Champagne. Champagne, France. I mean, it's bubbly. It can be clean and racy and austere and very uh, cerebral, or it could be really rich and toasty and, and celebratory and over the top. And I think uh, there's a, a everyday deserve champagne. So if I could have a travel there and have a cellar full of it, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. I support that. Champagne's not just for special occasions, my friends. And there's so much uniqueness about the bubbles. I don't know if you want to share something about that for our listeners, because everyone assumes that champagne, or if you're drinking sparkling wine, that's not from champagne. It's all the same. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a really big uh, distinction between champagne and say Prosecco or Cava or Cremant. Cremant is a term for sparkling wine made in France that comes from everywhere except champagne. So it's a, it's a different style. It's a different way in which it's made. And champagne is really the creme de la creme. It's a, a very labor-intensive, time-consuming process. It's being modernized a little bit here and there, but it's still time-consuming. And it, it has a lot of laws and uh, regulations in the process that creates this very perfect, polished, tiny, tiny uh, fizzy bubble. It's not like drinking soda, if you will. I always love making that connection to uh, club soda versus, say, Pellegrino mineral water. Um, just a little bit more fine and finesse. Can you share maybe the most interesting place that you have tasted wine at? And it doesn't have to be far traveled, but it could be a unique experience you've had even. Well, I think the the most unique place that I've, that I've tasted wine would be in a cave in France unique just to me. And, and actually I was there on a company trip and we were going through vineyards, having a good time, seeing the grapes, talking with the family, me understanding absolutely none of it. Cause I don't speak any French whatsoever, but um, all of a sudden they, they're like, Oh, follow us. And we're walking, we're walking back through the vineyards and we see their winery and then we pass the winery and we're in the Loire Valley and the Loire Valley is known for some of their, their chalky soils. Um, and there it's known as Tufo. It's, the type of soil that you can pretty much dig with your hands. And we walk into this deep cave where they're aging all of their bottles and they're, they've got their fermentation vats and they're doing a bunch of stuff down there. And it just, you're like transported to a different world. You can you kind of smell and you see the mold and you feel this different moist air. And it's like going down to middle earth and then popping a bottle of 1970 something. 1984 bottles that are older than me. And I'm like, this is, a, it's a totally different world. Yeah. There's some strong history when you hit some of the terroir out there. And is that where the Muscadet is uh, from? I'm trying to think. Loire. So yeah. So yeah. yeah. Muscadet is, is from, uh, is from the Loire. It's closer to the, uh, to the ocean. It's more yeah. uh, further to the West side, but yeah, absolutely. Right. I spent some time in Nantes uh, working back in my youth days. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of what we drank back and didn't probably appreciate it as much. But I will say it's a fascinating. You're one of the few Psalms this season that we're talking to that you actually work in wine. Some people do this yeah. on the side. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about how you did make wine your day job and what you do. And I'm going to ask you about some follow-ups, but I'd love to share a little bit with our listeners about your world of wine and what you do as, as your day job. 
Yeah. So like I said, uh, I started out in restaurants and I started, it was technically a night job at that point because I didn't come in until four o'clock. Um, and I, I was working as the floor som. I was working as a cellar rat, uh, kind of during the day, kind of, sort of. Um, but then I decided I needed a life. I needed to have uh, some friends, some family, and I decided to leave the restaurants. And I, now that I look back on it, I made a mistake. I went into retail. I went and worked for a retail wine shop. Not a traditional quote unquote liquor store, um, big box. It was a place I worked for, it was very small, family owned, um, and we curated very specialty bottles. And I say I made a mistake because I was, I wanted weekends and holidays off. And surprise, you don't get those in retail either. So I, I worked my way up from being uh, another stock boy part time up to full time. Uh, I became the wine buyer for all three of the stores that the family owned. And then I realized I hit another wall. I There was nowhere to go. I was buying for the stores. I was teaching the staff. I was teaching the ed- educating the customers. And there was nowhere else to go. So I called up one of my favorite distributors who I did a lot of work with. And I said, look, I, I need something else. I want more opportunity to grow. I want to learn more. I want to travel. I want to make more money, of course. And they said, sure, come on in for an interview. We've actually got a few openings. Um, It was very fortuitous. And that's what I do now. That was about six years ago. And so now I'm working for a company, Skarnik Wines and Spirits, where I I, technically, if you were to read my business card, I'm a salesperson. I'm a sales representative. Um, I consider myself a a storyteller because that's more or less what I do on the daily basis. I travel all over the the, uh, state of New Jersey and New York, uh, selling wines, spirits, sakes, and ciders to people who care about what they sell. And uh, it's uh, been very, very nice to be able to make uh, a living off of telling stories and imbibing in some of the best products in the the world. I appreciate you unpacking that role because we always have these stupid titles and jobs that never make sense. And so uh, as a distributor, you're you're right, you're doing sales, but you're telling stories, you're doing some education. Tell me a little bit about what you've learned because you're just exposed to so much more product in the world of wine and other alcohol. What have you learned in your distribution days and working with this company? Well, I've learned how how big our portfolio or how uh, how big a portfolio is in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you're n- a company is not going to have one Pinot Noir from California. They're not going to have two Pinot Noirs from California. They're going to have like 15. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> um, they're all different styles. They're different characters. Um, I've learned a lot about the care and craft that goes into the bottle by making closer connections to the winemakers um, and the the brand managers and the, the people behind the labels. And I think I'm fortunate to work for the company that I do now with Skernick because, and I tell this to my clients when I'm out on the road, I'm not selling a bottle of, of wine or a bottle of vodka that's going to pay for some big wig fat cat CEO to fly in his private jet and, and see the world and, and not work a, a minute. I'm selling a bottle of wine or spirit that is going to pay for a kid to go to college or is going to pay for the family dog to, to eat that night. I have very close connections to the entire family, um, everyone that makes all the products. I remember being on a trip in France the, to see Isabelle Garreau, one of our Sancerre producers, and her kids were just so willing to open the door. They were like, we were celebrities because we were their bread and butter. We sold their wine to the mass market and we were their connection to reality. I love that. Is there a way that you kind of expand your portfolio or how do you seek out 
new options to add and new new wines to list uh, besides going out to explore and traveling the world. So how do you find it, the new new places to go purchase from? Well, that's the difficult part because that's way above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> as much as as much fun as I have on the road, I I'm solely focused on sales um, and education of the products that we do have. But the brand management team behind us, the, the the managers that are above working behind the scenes, number one, they're getting tips from friends, from customers and clients who we've worked with for 30 plus years. They're saying Skernik is a name in the industry, uh, not to break our own arms or toot our own horns here, but we're a name in the industry. And there's people in Germany and France and Spain and, and Turkey and Hungary, all over the, all over the world who hear our name and they're like, we want to be in that portfolio. So we have people who solicit us all the time um, and try to get into the portfolio, which is, a, it's a great problem to have, um, having too many people come asking for your attention. Um, and the other side is it really is about exploring. To take a, a drive through the countryside of, of France or to go through some esoteric uh, vineyards in, in Turkey, like I mentioned, we actually just picked up a new Turkish winery not too long ago. So it's those little gems that we kind of put into our portfolio Sometimes they just fall into place. So if I was to think about switching my career up and go towards distribution, sales, and education, besides doing your uh, WSET diploma, what advice would you have for people looking to break into the industry? Um, I actually think far and away beyond my WSET, I got more knowledge and more information working in in my local wine shop for part-time. I think when I first started in the retail side of things, I was working three hours a day for like two days a week. It was nothing, but just seeing all of those labels that were on the shelf, seeing all of the boxes as they came in and the different distributors and the different salespeople that came in through the door and not even sitting face to face and listening to them, but just while I'm stalking over on the shelves and I'm just casually catching a glance or catching a, a word from the sentence. And that, that really, it all builds up over years and years and years. I consider myself, uh, no, I don't consider myself, I am one of the younger uh, people in the industry. I'm only 28 and I started essentially right out of college. I started at 21. So what becoming a salesperson, seeing a couple hundred clients at 23, when I started distribution, I had to fight. I had to really like prove knowledge. And just by having the experience of knowing what bottles were or what labels were, or knowing some of the ins and outs of the, of the wine world by being in a retail store where I got my start is a great way to get started. I love that suggestion. You get samples too. Yeah. It's like immersion. So it's like learning a language. If you want to learn the language of wine, it's being in a I love a bottle shop, or maybe you have a tasting room or some other place that offers wine experiences. That's a great suggestion. So thank you for that. Absolutely. The other side of things is going to local restaurants. I know I'm, I'm local to the New York market. So going into the city and sitting at a, a, a well-known, not even a well-known bar, but sitting at a bar that you know has a good wine program mm-hmm. and starting to talk with the bartenders or starting to talk with the Psalms or possibly even the owner. Um, when I was traveling in the city doing my studies, I would go to Cork Buzz, relatively well-known bar. She's got two locations in New York, and I think she's got a location down in Charleston as well. And I would say, hey, I'm studying this, I'm studying that. And all of a sudden, random pours of wine just start falling into my glass because the wine industry is so small and so close-knit. We rely on each other. We rely on friends and, and other colleagues in the industry to help us out and, and 
pass on knowledge, uh, which is why I'm so thankful to to be also working on the side with the Telesom community uh, because it's it's all about passing knowledge. We all have different little focuses and different expertises. It's really nice to share it and and again tell stories, have fun. There is a generosity to spirits and being in the spirit of wine. I think it's brilliant that you said that because I think people do, when they know that you want to learn more, they're going to share, uh, share their wine, share their knowledge, tell you a little bit about it and themselves. Thinking back to those days in your cellar rat and restaurant days, was, did you ever have a sommelier or wine blooper for, or faux pas that you can remember? Oh, <laughs> oh, plenty of those. It, it, it's, it starts as simple as my first day on the floor saying somebody wants a bottle and, oh, we'll take the 1997 Chateau Briand and I'm pulling out like a bottle of California Planck Pinot Noir because I have no idea what I'm doing. And then proceeding to open it and spill it all over the table and get it all over people and dry cleaning bills added up very quickly. That's always a big one. Having somebody at a table when I was very, uh, very young in the industry uh, at restaurants specifically, having them ask a question and me not knowing how to say, I don't know the answer. I'll get back to you on that. Instead, I would make something up and the manager would kind of just pass by and either hear me or the person I was talking to was testing me and actually knew something about something. And I just get called out and I'm like, now my heart's in my, my I can't breathe. I can't speak. I feel, yeah, the, those whole kind of ghostly moments of, I just screwed up. Yeah, it's better to say I don't know. That's what I've learned in, in everything. Or it's a good lesson. The other big one is the other big uh, the big thing is to uh, hold very expensive bottles with two hands. <laughs> um, I, I've had it happen to me on multiple occasions in both restaurants, retail, and distribution. The one prized bottle that you need to have and somebody wants just slipping through your delicate fingers and smashing <laughs> to the ground, and you can't get that back. Those are expensive bloopers. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I should ask you, since it's a podcast, what sound do you associate with your world of wine? I think this goes back to my favorite region uh, where I'd want to travel. It's got to be a cork pop, a uh, mm-hmm. good champ, uh, like a champagne cork pop. Or if you ever um, if you put a good corkscrew into an old bottle and you, you get that nice little plunk out of it. First off, with the sparkling bottles, with a champagne bottle, you can hear that from across the room. And when people hear it, they know it's time to party. So I always <laughs> love that one. But That's um, good. yeah, the other, the other one is just, I mean, people can hear that. People know what, what time it is when they hear that pop. And thinking about your experiences with customers and your wine education, has there been an interesting maybe experience with Telesom or on your own that you've had lately? Interesting experience. So I, I, it runs the gamut for me in the, in, the, in the world of wine from pulling teeth to make sales, because again, I have to pay a mortgage somehow, to people who don't even want to try the wine, they just want to hear me romanticize about it and tell the story. And they, they will close their eyes and they'll take a trip to whatever region I'm telling them about. Um, and it's like, it's just magical. And they're like, yeah, sure. We're done. We're, I'll take it. I'll take 10. I actually just finished an event yesterday. Uh, I was doing a, a whiskey cruise. So in New Jersey, there's the largest lake in New Jersey is Lake Hopatcong. And there's a very, there's a nice small little cruise company who has a, a lake boat that goes around the lake for a couple hours. And I was telling stories for two hours about whiskey and pouring and drinking and having a good time with friends. And all of a sudden we're pulling into the dock and everyone's getting off the boat. And I'm like, wait, what just happened? It, it was in a to- total time warp of, we were just having too much fun and telling great stories. 
Christopher, thank you so much for joining us for a conversation on VinoFab. We appreciate uh, what you're doing in the world of wine and how you're bringing stories and your passion to the industry. Absolutely. It's been a, been a bunch of fun and I'm glad to be here as well. Thanks for listening to an Invino Fab and Telesong production, The Smalliest Stories, Uncorking Wine Tales. If you liked this episode, tell a friend to subscribe and leave us a rating review in Apple Podcasts. Telesong brings the psalm to you. Check us out online at telesong.app or on Instagram at telesong.app. We can't wait to meet you. 